0: Thank you all for praying together. Uh, I hope you have a Bible, and I'm uh, sure that you do. If you do, I would love for you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Tonight we're going to look at verses number 11 through 21. We're actually going to begin by reading verses 11 through 15. Uh, I believe these verses really uh, state the 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 thesis or, or make it very clear what is the message in this passage uh, but we'll unpack it verse by verse in a little bit as well but I want to begin by reading verse 11 through 15 if you found your place and follow along with me there um, every every chapter in every book of the Bible is remarkable if you've been here with us for second Corinthians I hope that these chapters have become some of your favorites as they've become some of my favorites as I've once again, begin reading them and studying them for the first time in a while in terms of a, of a, a book uh, a study in one, uh, one single book so i 'm thankful for this opportunity to preach this text. I hope that you are uh, taking advantage of the opportunity to receive what this text has for you. It was written to Corinth two thousand years ago, but it was just the same written to risen in two thousand and twenty three so let 's hear it as if it 's god 's word to us because that 's what it is. Verse number 11, knowing therefore the terror or the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you an opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, or if we are out of our minds, it is for God Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us. It constrains us. It controls us. Because we judge thus, or we have determined this, that if one died for all, then all have died. And if he died for all, that those who live should live no longer to themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Looks like we've got another important message in front of us tonight. So we might be in the middle of a chapter, but we're entering into a new section in 2 Corinthians. For the last couple of weeks, we've talked about the necessity to persevere through hardships. That when ministry gets tough, and it does, when life gets hard, and it does, when we're challenged, we must endure, keep our eyes on the prize, because we know that it's all part of God's plan, and that the challenges we're facing are part of the process of redemption, and that we know that heaven is on the horizon all the more reason for us to be faithful. Uh, The challenges we face prepare us for eternity, and they cause us to have a clearer understanding of what is really valuable in life. And we talked last week about what is earthly and what is eternal, what is... Not important in the grand scheme of things and what is most important when you consider heaven and and what's on the line. So if you'll remember back to chapter 3, remember how Paul distinguished the new covenant from the old covenant. And then in chapter 4, he briefly talked about the importance of being on mission, before going into the last couple of weeks' uh, conversation about the struggles of being on mission, the struggles of being in ministry, and how we should not be discouraged, even though it does get tough. Now, after about a whole chapter of that, chapter 4 and most of 5, he's going to shift back to the mission that we've all been assigned. Remember a few weeks ago, we all have a ministry, we're all on mission, and we're going to really emphasize that tonight. So after talking about being uh, faithful and and staying faithful and not getting discouraged and not giving up, uh, now he is back to talking about the mission that we are on. So you could very easily title this passage, this message even. Uh, This is about new covenant ministry, and we're going to talk about what our motivation is and what our message is, what our motivation is in what our message is. So all of us have a ministry, and it's under this new covenant that just as Moses was given a ministry, the old covenant, we are part of this new covenant ministry. Everybody is included in this ministry. For the next ch- several chapters, Paul is going to focus on the work of ministry that he was involved in, that we're involved in. He's going to give us key insights about how we can be successful in in our own ministry, successful where it counts, of course. Uh, he's gonna he's already encouraged us to be to to to, to endure the trials and troubles. But in the next couple of chapters, he's especially gonna talk about how we should have maintain our integrity, how we should be pure and holy, and how we should uh, be generous and make the right investments as we're part of this ministry and this mission. But tonight is going to be more general, more broad, uh, as in it's going to apply to all of us no matter where we are in what life. Uh, and he's going to set the tone for the rest of this book, really. So we have this great ministry, and ministry really is all about participating. Uh, it's about participating in the work of God. God has given us a ministry to be a part of what he's doing. And really, if you think about it, about 50% of the New Testament is about our being involved in the ministry that God has started, uh, half of the New Testament is focused on teaching us what we should believe, and the other half is talk is all about teaching us to go and tell people uh, that they should believe as well. And, and I don't just mean that it's the first part and then the second part. I mean all throughout the New Testament, you could you could take half the verses and they're about believing, and half the verses they're about going and telling others how they should believe and why they should believe. So think about this. Evangelism is so core to the message of the New Testament uh, that the importance of sharing the good news is emphasized day in date with the dawn of the good news. As in, from the very moment that the good news comes, there's a message of sharing that good news. From the first day that the good news was proclaimed, we see in that story the importance of sharing that good news. And I'm talking about ground zero, Christmas night, when the good news was first proclaimed. Maybe you've never put this together, but I want to show you just how in that story we see this progression from Hearing the good news to sharing the good news. So Luke 2, we all know this very well from Christmas time. The angel said to the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. So that's the gospel, right? Good news of great joy for all people. A Savior has come. Our sin is great. Our Savior is greater. You may feel far from God, but God has come all this way to find you personally. For you there is born a Savior this day. So that's true for all of us, right? The gospel is good news for all of great joy. A Savior has come. And then we see in that story that the shepherds respond to this message. They hear about Jesus and they go and see him for themselves. Luke 2 15 tells us that the angels went away from them into heaven and the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So follow with me. They hear it. They go and see it for themselves as in they put their faith in it individually. They hear about it. They go and see it and they believe in it individually, personally. And then what happens? And when they saw it, when they saw Jesus in the manger and they believed it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. So don't you see that in the very beginning of Christianity, on ground zero of Christianity, what do we see? We see the gospel proclaimed, we see it received, and we see it shared. Do you think that's a coincidence that on opening day of Christianity, right, ground zero for Christianity, do you think it's a coincidence that the story tells us about people hearing it and people sharing it? Don't you think that's a bit foreshadowing? Don't you think that's a bit of, of Luke's way and the Holy Spirit's way of saying, this is how it always works. You hear it, you receive it, and then you, yes, you, share it that the gospel received does something in us that cannot be contained to our own hearts. Now think about when Jesus first called his disciples. Don't you remember that he informed them of where they were going to go as followers of him? That when they first followed him, they had a lot of work to do, right? They had a lot of learning to do. They had a lot of things to get rid of, a lot of things to learn, a lot of things to to, to, a lot of ways to grow. But don't you know that Jesus kind of showed them the end result of their lives before they ever even got their faith going? Matthew 4 tells us that Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon, who is Peter, Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he says to them, those famous words. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, I, I listen. A, a lot of us, you know, lot you know, smart preachers and Bible teachers, and you know, people smarter than me, scholars. They would push their glasses up their nose and say, "Whoa, whoa! Before you think that you need to go straight from following to fishing, there's some things you need to learn." And we agree, right? We think, well, hey, you know, you just joined the church. You need to enroll in a, in a starting uh, you know, Sunday school class. You need to get acclimated. Have you ever read the Bible? Have you ever, do you know the, 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 the Ten Commandments? Do you know what the New Testament teaches? I mean, somebody comes to Christ, they're a baby, right? I mean, they, they're not ready to go out and start fishing for men. I mean, they need to get informed and get educated and get enlightened, and we can't put them on the front line of the mission team because they don't know what they're talking about. I mean, that's how we think, right? I mean, hey, we've been around for a while. We know the songs. We know the verses. We know the right and the wrong. So we should be doing the work. But Jesus says, hey, y'all follow me, and I'm going to tell y'all where we're going already. Y'all are going to be fishing for men before you know it. And... I mean, these guys, they meet Jesus, they put their faith in Jesus, and Jesus is okay. Y'all believe I'm Messiah? Y'all believe I'm here to to save the world? Good, good. So now y'all need to go tell people that. You don't got to learn the whole Bible. You don't got to learn everything about the ark and about the flood and about the Red Sea and all that stuff. We'll get there, but you guys know enough to go out and tell people about me because you just met me and you just put your faith in me, and that's enough to get you guys ready for ministry. I mean, what if we took it that simple and serious to this day? That that's all we really cared about. Do you know Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Are you following Jesus? Then, hey, you are ready to go and tell the world about him. Why is it that we've put so many, so much weight and so much junk in the way of what we're actually called to do? And he wasn't just talking in jest here. If you, if you read John's version, now John gives us a little bit more of a beat-by-beat Um, a little bit more point-to-point description of this story. Matthew gives us kind of the bird's-eye view, you know, 30,000-foot view. Okay, he meets these guys, follow me, they follow him, they go fish for people. But John gives us a little bit of a different version of the story, but you can tell it's a little bit more up close. And it's up close because he was there himself. John, in John chapter 1, uh, says that John the Baptist, that's who that John is, the next day, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples. Now, we believe that two of the, these two disciples, one of them was John, the writer of the gospel of John. One of them was John, and one of them was a guy named Andrew. So John was there when this happened. So he says, hey, one day I was following John the Baptist because, hey, we believed that he was pointing us to where God wanted us to go. And then here comes Jesus, and John says, hey, that's where you're supposed to go. Behold the Lamb of God. So John and Andrew hear the gospel. That's the Lamb of God who's gonna take away the sins of the world. Put your faith in him, and he will save you from sin. He will change your life. And the story goes that one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was named Andrew. And John says, you know who Andrew is because if you've heard this story before, he's Simon Peter's brother and Simon Peter is really the more famous one of the two. But you wouldn't know who Simon Peter is if it wasn't for his brother Andrew. So Andrew first follows Jesus and Andrew finds his own brother Simon and says, we have found the Messiah. So do you see the, 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 the message? Andrew follows, and what is he doing in the very next verse? He's fishing, right? He follows Jesus, and what does he do in the next verse? He finds his brother and says, we have found the Messiah. He didn't go and get a degree. He didn't go and sit in a Sunday school class for five years before he was ready. He didn't go to 100 church services. He got saved, and the first thing he did was start telling people about what Jesus did for him and what he could do for others. The story goes on. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and he said to Philip, hey, follow me. And Philip finds Nathaniel, and he says, hey, we found the one who Moses talked about. We found the Messiah. So do do you see a pattern here? The shepherds hear, and what do they do? They share. Andrew hears, and he shares. Philip hears, and he shares. So do, do you get the message? A person's salvation almost always led to their participation in evangelism. And last example, but this is a big one. Think about all the miracles that Jesus performed. What is the, what is, how does each episode of of healing or or miracle, how does each of those episodes end if you read the Gospels? How does the Gospel writer kind of put a bow on those stories when Jesus heals somebody or when Jesus saves somebody? All the people he impacted, in all the different ways, every single episode ends like this. Mark 5, 20, and he went away and began to proclaim in the capitalists how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. I mean, you can find that verse in some variation a hundred times in all four Gospels. They hear about him, they imp- they're impacted by him, and what do they do? They can't stop talking about him. And, and Jesus is walking into town, and somebody says, that's the guy I was talking to you about. There's the guy I was just telling you about. So if it's not obvious, salvation and discipleship go hand in hand are a package deal with evangelism. Now fast forward to the 21st century. And oh, we're so smart, aren't we? Well, we're going to have a special evangelism class once a year to help you, help you consider being a witness for Jesus. Oh, you don't have to be. I mean, preachers have to be careful now because hey, you tell people they have to be. They don't like that. But hey, I'll, I'll tell you that the Bible says you have to be. But we are so careful and we're so quenching the Spirit. Oh, well, we're going to talk about evangelism today and maybe you would want to be a witness one day. But only if it's comfortable for you. Only if it works out for you. I mean, do you see how we just water this down? Come on, what's wrong with us? i, I tell you what's wrong with us is we don't read our Bibles. And when we do read the Bible, we don't obey the Bible. We obey part of it, right? We, we, we miss this, though. I mean, think about how did Jesus cap off his earthly ministry right before he ascended. He said, all authority in heaven and earth is, has, has been given to me. Now, I don't know about you, but if all authority in heaven and earth was given to me, I would make some pretty big demands of people. I mean, if you had all the authority and power in the universe, what would you ask for? What would you tell people to do? How would you tell them to live? I mean, we would really get people in line, wouldn't we? We would really straighten people up. We would get this world and this country in the right place. Jesus, who is large and in charge, he has just defeated the grave You know what his parting command was? Of course you do, because you've heard this a hundred times. Go and make disciples of all nations. And I don't just mean go and just flippantly walk by people. I want you to go and make disciples, and I want you to see that they're baptized in your church. That's what baptizing means. It means they're joining your church. That means this isn't just something where I just stand on a mountaintop and scream at people, or I'm on a court, street corner, and I'm holding a sign up. I mean, that might have a place. But this is not just you know, reckless evangelism. This is individual, personal disciple-making. Because baptism happens in the church, and that happens in relationships, where relationships are built and, and, and fostered. I want you to go and make disciples. I want you to see them join your church. I want you to teach them what I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you to the end of the age. Now, I, I, don't, I don't mean this, I'm not being mean, but Jesus does not say he's going to be with us to make us feel better for our own sakes. He says he's with us so that we will do this mission. Do you see that connection? The reason he says I'm going to be with you is so that you will do this. The primary purpose of us having the Holy Spirit is that we would be witnesses. Acts 1-8, right? Go and be witnesses into Judea and Samaria, the ends of the earth. That's the entire book of Acts. Every Christian was called to be a witness. You, You know what? They had what we don't that we don't have? You know what was different about them than us? And I'm just saying in general, the 21st century church, they understood the moment in history they were blessed to be a part of and they knew they couldn't drop the ball. You know when Jesus gave them the keys to the kingdom? And I've used this analogy before. When he he gave them the key, not a physical key, a literal key, but when he gave them the key, they never went a day in their life without that key weighing something weighing on them that when it was in their pocket every single day they felt it they knew it was there and it was impacting them it was reminding them i've got the key to the kingdom of heaven i've got the key to the door of heaven how in the world can i not take advantage of this how in the world can i be silent how in the world can i not tell people about jesus i've got the key We talk about this all the time. We talked about this on Sunday in our Pentecost message. They knew it was a big deal. They understood the gravity and the sacredness. Gravity means something that pulls you in and something that keeps you in, in orbit. That the, the evangelistic mission kept them in orbit. It was so sacred, they never took it for granted. They never took it lightly. So, so one last story I, I want to tell you. There's an Old Testament story about Elisha. We know about Elijah. Elijah, we hear about him on the mountaintop doing all the miracles. Elisha doesn't get a lot of airtime, But this is how he enters the story. So Elijah departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. Now the cloak or the mantle was symbolic for the Spirit of God in the Old Testament. Moses had the rod. Elijah had the mantle. It was this shawl that he wore around his neck and wore over his shoulders. That mantle, that cloak represented the power of God on him. That mantle represented the Spirit of God over his life and the ministry that he was given to serve God in. So Elijah goes to Elisha and throws the mantle on him. And Elisha is a little busy. He says he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, hey, I know what this means. I know this is a big prophetic moment. You're asking me to follow you, but oh, Elisha, Elijah, I got a lot going on. I got a mom and a dad and I got a farm. So if you first let me go and talk to them for a little while, it might be a couple days, it might be a couple years, I don't know. If you let me go get this straight, I'll follow you as soon as I can. And Elijah was a little bit sarcastic. If you read the whole story of Elijah, he's a, he's a big guy, a big personality. He didn't hold back. He told people what he thought, and he didn't, he didn't lie to people. He didn't just blow smoke up people. Elijah says, hey, what have I done to you? Fine, go on. I mean, I don't know what if I don't know what I just did to you that actually deserves you to you know what, that would actually make you follow me. So if it doesn't mean anything to you, then hey, no big deal. I'll take my mantle back. I'm good. Now, of course, Elijah was trying to make him feel bad, right? Rightfully so, Elisha goes back from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them, boiled their flesh with the yokes of oxen and gave it to the people and they ate it and he arose and went after Elijah. So the moral of the story is Elisha is convicted when Elijah kind of calls him out for, being, for, for making excuses and for not wanting to be a part of the team. So Elisha goes and burns all the stuff that would keep him from following him and he says, hey, I'm here. Because in that moment, the gravity and the sacredness of the moment took over, and Elisha said, I I can't, I can't make excuses. So let me ask you this. Do you understand? Do you understand what it means to be a follower and a fisherman in Jesus' kingdom? It's okay if you say no to that, or I don't fully understand. That's why we're doing this tonight. And I know it'd be easy to say, well, Justin, there's a whole lot of people that understand it less than I do, and I know I'm not where I should be, but let's just talk about us tonight, because we're, we're here and nobody else is, right? So that's, that's what matters. Do you understand what it means to be a follower and a fisherman in Jesus' kingdom? See, a lot of us are really good at being followers, because, hey, it's just us and God, and that's all that matters. But Jesus quickly made it about more than just us and God, didn't he? And the New Testament makes it more than about us and God, obviously. Does his calling over you to be a disciple and to make disciple drive you? I think a lot of times, we Baptists are really good at the be a disciple part, be a follower part. We evangelistic Christians are really good at the following and the disciple part. We're not so good at the making disciples part. We're not so good at the fishing part, are we? i tell you, though, if we, are, if we take the Bible seriously, we will wrestle with these questions. And church, having this kind of conversation on Wednesday night is so important because you are the folks that have the potential of wrestling with these questions, of getting serious about these questions, and making a difference in this world. If we take our faith seriously, we will not turn a blind eye to, this, to the way it is, uh, in the world the way it is, we will be on mission. And I know why people say, well, Justin, it's just hard. I mean, do you know what the world's like? I know what the world's like. And let me ask you this. Do you think the world is more hostile to Christianity today than it was 2,000 years ago? I know, how, I know what's going on in the world. But do you know what happened 2,000 years ago if you were a public follower of Jesus? You were crucified. Sight unseen. Have you read Acts before? Right? They are put in jail and they're threatened to say the name of Jesus. They're beaten. Stephen stoned, right? I mean, we could go on and on. I mean, they, they're all almost dead before you get to sixth, Before you get to seventy A.D., every disciple is dead. But John, Paul's beheaded. So, yeah, I know how hostile the world is to Christianity now. It's not near as hostile as it was two thousand years ago. Maybe in Iraq, maybe in China, maybe in the Middle East, but it's not that way in America. Yes, yeah, somebody might make you feel bad or make you mad because of their smart aleck response or their disrespectful response, but they're not gonna kill you. And if they do kill you, is that an excuse? But the government's not gonna put you on a cross, at least not in America. Here's the problem. The problem is we are more afraid of what evangelism might cost us now than we are of what disobedience might cost us eternally. I mean, when I when I look at my own heart and I say, Justin, what's my excuse? Here's my excuse. I'm more afraid of what evangelism now might cost me than I am afraid of what it of what being disobedient will cost me in heaven. And it's not going to cost me my life right now. It's just going to cost me my time. It's just going to cost me my comfort. It's going to force me to study and go to church more and desire to learn more. It's going to take me out of my comfort zone. That's what it's going to cost me. But hey, that's a big cost for a lot of us, isn't it? It's going to force us to work on our personality quirks. It's going to force us to try to be a different person. And listen, I am the number one introvert in the world. I don't want to talk to people most of the time. No offense. I love y'all. But I, I'm good with not talking to people. Ask Lindsay. I don't, I'm, just don't talk. I have to reconcile, though. This commandment doesn't excuse me just because I'd rather be selfish or comfortable. And I'll be honest with you. I would rather be selfish and comfortable. And I'm not saying it's easy. Listen, it's a lot of work. When, when I first got in the ministry, and I'm not bragging, uh, clearly I don't have anything to brag about. But I just want to sh- tell you just how serious I took this, and I take this, and I know that there's plenty more I got to do. When I first got in the ministry, I took every opportunity to get my to get myself in the most uncomfortable environments in order to break my will, because my will, my 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 flesh said, Justin. You know, I, I told God, I don't like talking to people. I'm not good at talking to people. I don't really care about what, to, I, don't, I just don't, I'm just selfish. I don't want to, and I'm not comfortable. I'm an introvert. I'm weird. I don't, I had a hundred excuses, but I knew, hey, God's called me to do this. and I got to figure out how to do this. And not everybody's called to be a preacher, right? I know that, but we're all called to be evangelists. So we got to do something about this. So when I first got into ministry, when I first felt called to ministry, I, would, I, I, I intentionally put myself in the most uncomfortable situations. Now that I'm a pastor, I'm, I'm in those uncomfortable situations all the time. So just kidding. But you know it happens all the time now. But when I first got into ministry, I, I, went to, I went to the nursing home with an older deacon at my former church every week, twice a week. And I learned how to relate to people that I had no idea how to relate to. I was 18 years old, 17, 18 years old. Who in the world am I to walk into their room and say, hey, how you doing? I didn't know what I was doing, but I followed this guy around for three years just to learn how to talk to people because I didn't know, and honestly, I didn't want to. But I knew that wasn't going to work when I stood in front of God one day and I said, oh, God, I didn't really want to do that. I I went into prisons and jails and was scared to death around people three times my size. sitting down with people across the uh, table with, with people who had murdered people. And I didn't know what to do. And I still do not know what to do. But, but my point is, I put myself in an environment where I knew my will would be broken. I went to preach wherever God opened the door for me. I found myself in churches that I didn't even know why I was there. And, and, I, some crazy situations where I, I, I know that the only reason I took that opportunity is because I knew I had to figure this out. I knew it was not an option for me to say, God, I just don't want to do it, or I just don't know how to do it. If I was ever going to convince others to do it, I had to learn how to do it myself. So this is what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. Not being afraid of God, but having your conscience wired and your sensitivity wired to God's will, as in you're more afraid and you're more fearful of disobeying God then you are, are wired to anything else. As in, hey, we, we get really wired to this world. I don't want to miss this. I don't want to miss that. I don't want to lose that. The more sensitive we are to God, the more wired we are to God. I don't think there's a more repeated commandment than this one in the, in the New Testament. Paul says, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Now, I just spent 30 minutes explaining what Paul said in about 10 words in Verse 11. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Do you know what he's talking about now? Having the fear of God, knowing the gravity and the sacredness and the seriousness of the mission, we will do our best to persuade people to follow Jesus, and we will not make excuses. He says, we are well known to God and I trust that we're well known to you. Our willingness or our unwillingness to be on mission reveals our heart's true condition. Paul says, y'all know us. Y'all know my heart. I know your heart. This is important. And the thing that gives our hearts away the most is our willingness or unwillingness to be on this mission. That's what reveals our heart's condition. Can you be saved and not bothered by the Great Commission? Yes, most Christians are saved and unbothered. But if you are saved, at some point you're going to come face to face with a message like this one. If you're saved, you're going to be in church, you're going to read your Bible, and it's going to become frequently in front of you. A heart for God cannot hide behind selfishness and carelessness forever. Cannot. It will be confronted and forced to be to come to terms with this mission. In verse 12, Paul tells the Corinthians that they already know his heart. He's just giving them further proof of it. But he's also helping them see what's important. He says, we're not about our appearance. We're about our hearts. Here's what he's saying. Y'all don't know that I'm on mission because I look like a preacher. Y'all know I'm on mission because I'm on mission. You get the point? About 13 years ago, I read a book called We Are Not Professionals. Brothers, we are not professionals. John Piper wrote that book, and his emphasis was to preachers and to deacons and to church leaders, but to all Christians really, that the message of Christianity is not that we look a certain way or we're defined by religious distinctions. We are defined by our spiritual convictions, we are driven by an eagerness to be a witness. Verse 13 says that this may seem strange to some. Some may say we are beside ourselves, which is, that's, that's being polite, a polite way of saying we're crazy. Some may say you're out of your mind if you think the most important thing is to be a witness for Jesus. You, you're out of your mind if you think your purpose is to share Jesus with people. Mind your own business, is what they'll say. If people call you crazy or worse, then so be it. In verse 14 and 15, he exposes the difference between someone who is truly letting Jesus change their heart and those that still have room to grow. He says the love of Christ constrains us, compels us. That means ties a rope around you and drags you in this direction. Because we judge this, if one died for all, now this is the rationale that Paul lived by. This is a big, this is a big deal. And this might be where a lot of us hung up or haven't figured this out Paul says the reason why it's easy for me to stay on mission and not get discouraged or frustrated or give up when people don't listen or get aggravated when people don't want to respond Paul says this is my attitude this is my my mindset if one died for all then all died as in if Jesus died for all that means it's possible that everybody can get saved do you see how, do you see how he's, what he's saying there? Paul says, the reason why I've determined in my heart to be a witness and never give up and always believe that people can be saved is because if Jesus died for what? For all. He didn't die for some or for a few or for the elect or for some percentage of people. He died for all. So if he died for all, then Paul's way of saying this is that all have died or that all have died. Have been covered or can be covered in the death of Jesus. All can be saved. Because if Jesus died for all, that means that nothing's in the way where it counts. They may say no, but the biggest burden, the biggest obstacle, it's been taken out of the way. He says, if he died for all, that then those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and rose again. So so here's what Paul says. So if he died for all, then all can be saved. So if I know that and I believe that and I've been saved, that means I have no excuse. Do you see how Paul has rationalized this? Should no longer live for themselves. The answer to this question reveals whether you need to be with God more than any others. Uh, the answer is that reveals where we are and if, where we, if we are where we need to be with God more than any others is this one: Are you living for yourself or for him and for those He gave his life up for? Now this is Christianity in a nutshell. I know this is convicting, but what's the New Testament all about? Love one another, esteem others higher than yourself now. We want to make that just about Christians. We want to say, oh, that's just telling us to love Christians. But this verse is telling us it's not just about Christians. This is about lost people. Paul saying, hey, love of God constrains us and compels us because if he died for all, then all can be saved. So I'm not going to live for me anymore. I'm going to live for him and for them. Now, I don't know about you. This is not where I don't naturally make that connection. Because I don't want to be, I don't want to do this, but Paul says this, and if Paul says this, then I think we've got to go with Paul, right? If we love Jesus and his life is in us, it will drive us to live for him and love all who died for all. And by loving all, that means witnessing to them and being willing to be in a relationship with people so that we might get the chance to witness to them. Do you see why that's important? Paul's not just saying that we just walk by people and say, repent, repent. He's saying you get in people's lives and you make a difference in their lives and you make an impact on them. That's hard work. That's hard work. That requires time and commitment and effort. I get it, right? That's the the mission though. Why are we living for him? Because he lives through us. And if we are loving, if he loves us, then we will love him. Those that he puts around us. And, and this, this leans into the big inhibitor of the Great Commission. We see people in their sin, don't we? And we don't see the point because we see their sin and we see that they don't want to, they don't have a, they're not cooperating. So why am I going to put my investment in them if they're not going to even make an effort? Well, the reason they're not making an effort is because they're lost, right? But verse 16, Paul says, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Now, here's why Paul is saying this, because it's tempting to look at people and say, their sin is too big and they are too selfish and they're too lost that if I, even, if I try, it's not going to make a difference. I'm not going to make a dent on their heart. There's no reason for me to even try, because look how lost they are. Look how worldly they are. Look how in the flesh they are. Paul says, we don't regard anyone as in the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer because Christ died in the flesh for all in the flesh to give everyone access to his spirit. This is so hard. This is hard. You got you to gotta make a point to pray for this. We, sh- we got to stop seeing people imprisoned by their sin because if we've come out of our grave, that means there's hope for them. Do you agree? If we have come out of our grave, then they can too. Verse 17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. We are proof that the new creation has come. And if we are part of the new creation, anybody can be. You like that rationale? I think it's a good rationale, right? If I can be saved, then who can't be? That might hurt some of our Pharisees in the room, right? But come on, we all know what we were. We all know what we are outside of Jesus. So we have got to stay hopeful and we have got to stay winsome. Everything that is needed to save anyone has been provided in Christ. No amount of old can prevent the new from coming. No sin is too great. So we must lead in this mission demonstrating how God has accomplished this. And this goes back to what he said in verse 15, living for, themsel- living for him, not themselves. We have to be determined to be like Jesus so that people have no excuse. Verse 18, now all things are of God. He who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So what does that mean? He's made you and I. He's given you and I this ministry. And he's told us to go and see people reconciled to me. That is, verse 19, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the words of reconciliation. So where do we go with this? Every single day, you and I have to demonstrate the reconciling power of God to the people that have not been reconciled yet. We must conduct our lives with a reconciling spirit demonstrating Christ's reconciling work. Why do you think Jesus said stuff like this in the the Gospels? You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other. If someone takes your cloak, give him your tunic. If someone says, go a mile, go two. Why do you think Jesus said stuff like that? Why do you think Jesus said stuff like, you've heard it said of old, you shall love your neighbor but hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons or daughters of your Father in heaven. Why do you think Jesus said stuff like that? Because if we demonstrate the reconciling power of God, they see their own hope of reconciliation. Do you see that? Why do you think Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God? Because the closest they'll ever get to God is you. And if you remind them of God, maybe they'll get closer to God. Verse 20, underline it, highlight it, do whatever you can do to make a note about it. We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God was pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Do you see the whole point of this message? You and I are ambassadors for God. And what is God doing through our lives? He is imploring through our lives to lost people. So how can he do that? If we demonstrate his reconciling power and message. Verse 21, for he made himself to be no sin to be who who knew no sin, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So you say, How can I be this witness? How can I be this ambassador? God has taken away the sin that was in you and given you his righteousness, and that's the same thing he can do for those that are still lost. Jesus has already taken and paid for every sin of every sinner. The gospel invites all to trade the sin we still possess for the righteousness he provides. Church, do you see the message? You and I are supposed to show the world that this is possible. And if we don't show them that, how are they going to know it? How did you come to Christ? How did you get saved? Somebody showed it to you. Your mom, your dad, your preacher, somebody still how it works. Our job is to show that Jesus can change a life, love those that are lost until they realize they need what Jesus has. Our job is not to save people. We cannot save people. We will never save a person. But we must be a witness until the end comes. We are ambassadors. To be saved is to be an ambassador. Disciples make disciples. So church, I want y'all to get a hold of this with me and I want y'all to pray about this with me because if we, if a group like this on a Wednesday night can't get this, there's no chance of a group 10 times this size of getting it. If a group like this that anchors a church can't get this, then nobody in a bigger church could ever get this. Do you you understand that? If we don't get this, then what's some casual person coming in once a month gonna get? How, How are they gonna get it? If we don't get this, then how in the world can we expect the rest of Christians can get it? They're not going to. And when I stand in front of God, I'm not going to be judged for whether they did or not, right? I'm going to be judged for whether I did or whether I didn't. So it's time I quit making excuses. I'll let you make that decision for yourself. But it's time a lot of us quit making excuses, isn't it? Ambassadors, you know what the ambassador means? An ambassador is someone that's sent from one country to another representing that country. God has trusted you to be his ambassador to that foreign soil, to that lost person. So maybe that's why we are supposed to take it on the chin sometimes. Maybe that's why we're supposed to turn the other cheek. Because that might be the only chance they get to experience the forgiveness of God. I don't know. I'll let y'all think about that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, what is such a challenging message to preach because this is something that no, no preacher's ever going to have perfect in their own heart, let alone be able to be a, a, a above reproach in delivering it. But Father, I pray you might would... You, I, I know that you can, sh- you can use every one of these men and women tonight to be ambassadors for your kingdom. You can use everybody here tonight to bring at least one other person to Jesus and maybe multiple people to Jesus, maybe several people to Jesus. If you took 20 people and they led 20 people and they led 20 people, that you, you would have 60, 70, 80 people saved in no time. And I know that sounds great and that sounds lofty and ideal, but what if that could actually happen? We'll never know if we don't take serious the calling to be ambassadors, to be fishermen to be witnesses. Lord, you might want us to spend our entire life praying for one person. You might make us, use us to make 30 or 40 disciples. I I don't know what it might be, but I know this means that all of us are called to be witnesses. All of us are called to be ambassadors. And we shouldn't make excuses. We can't make excuses. There's too much on the line. God, we thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.